The next case was presented by Dr. Mary Ann Allison to Drs. Mackey and Geyer. This is an 84-year-old lady that was diagnosed with a myeloproliferative syndrome, which was consistent with polycythemia vera in May of 05. Her hemoglobin at that time was 19.7. She was at that time being followed in Brooklyn by her oncologist and was traveling back and forth to Las Vegas. At one point, she decided that she would spend most of her time in Las Vegas and transferred her care to one of my partners. This was in August of 06. Her hemoglobin was 19.9, white count 12,000, platelets 794,000. When my partner examined her, he found a 7-centimeter mass in her left breast. She declined a mammogram at that time, and you can kind of pick up on this personality that I was dealing with, that she was a very smart lady. She was very feisty. I spent a lot of my adult time in Texas and didn't have a whole lot of contact with people from Brooklyn, New York. So it was an experience for me (laughs) that I imagine many of you at this table have already had this experience in the past. Was she your patient in Brooklyn, (laughs) (laughs) Alan? She did agree to a biopsy since we wanted to treat her and would not do so without some type of path. And the ultrasound-guided biopsy showed an infiltrating lobular carcinoma. It was ER 87%, PR 6%, KI 67, 58%. Her two knew was negative by fish. She was seen by surgery for uh, possible lumpectomy, mastectomy. A lot of discussions were had, and the option for preoperative femora was brought forward, and that was the approach that was chosen. There was hope that the mass would shrink. At that time... Was the thinking that it needed to be smaller in order to do breast conservation? Yes. At no time was this woman in a position that she would say, I just want a mastectomy. She really wanted to explore all of the options. She had a daughter who lived with her and a daughter who lived in the Pacific Northwest. The daughter in the Northwest wanted her to come see me. And so a second surgeon was consulted prior to my visit. He did another biopsy, and the mass was at that time 10 centimeters. And a clip was placed so that we would have something to follow as we treated her with femora. I consulted on her in October of 06, and at that time the daughter came in from the Pacific Northwest for the consultation. And I had not yet met the daughter that lived in Las Vegas. The conversation was at least an hour and a half on this situation, and at that time we decided that we would proceed with Femara. Her medical history included coronary artery disease with an abnormal EKG, but she was stable and was active. She had no symptoms. She was on atenolol, Lasix, Acupril, and at the time I met her, her hemoglobin was 16. She had a million platelets at that time. She was very alert and oriented, and like I said, was very opinionated, appropriately so, but on my exam, she had a 10-centimeter palpable mass. I did a PET scan, which showed no evidence of metastatic disease. I first started her on Hydrea, since she was already on Femara. I felt that she needed a cardiology consultation, and at that point in time, cardiology was consulted. They cleared her for surgery. Was there any discussion or thought about neoadjuvant chemotherapy? We talked about that, but she did not want chemotherapy. She came into the office ready to take more pills, ready to have surgery, but did not want chemotherapy. If she did or she was open to it, would you have brought it up or considered it? I would have considered it because I kept trying to find some reason 
that we wouldn't do anything else. And every time we did, she was cleared. Her cardiology was fine. You know, I'm in U.S. oncology, so we've been using TC for a while. I'm also a part of UCLA network, so we've been using the carbo aspect also. So I probably would have talked about TC times four, but I would not have approached this lady with an anthracycline. Chuck, how do you sort through the decision between chemo and endocrine therapy in the neoadjuvant setting? Well, I think personally, if a patient is going to receive chemotherapy as part of their treatment sequence, I still like to use it as my neoadjuvant therapy. And so the only time I really would personally consider neoadjuvant hormonal therapy is this situation. I don't understand doing neoadjuvant hormonal therapy, operating, and then giving post-surgical chemotherapy. I just... That's something I can't get around that concept. So for me, the neoadjuvant hormonal therapy is limited to exactly this type of patient. John? Well, there's one point in the case which also argues against neoadjuvant chemotherapy. She has an infiltrating lobular carcinoma, and they're all virtually high ER expressors. We don't get good responses from neoadjuvant chemotherapy with infiltrating lobular carcinoma. It's the big bugaboo. What do you do with these women? They just don't get tumor shrinkage. Generally, they're a small subset of these neoadjuvant trials, but the lobulars are strongly ER positive, which we now know is a weak surrogate for chemo insensitivity. And so in this case in particular, I think you've done exactly the right thing with the neoadjuvant hormones. And the reality is that whether she gets to surgery or not, and I'm thinking she's quite high risk for surgery. These women, paradoxically, with platelet counts over a million, can bleed a lot. So, I mean, you know, you can run into problems. But if you can't get her to surgery, for whatever reason, you can consider irradiation and hormones and watch. I mean, I've found myself in similar situations. Can you just bring us up to date on the case, and then we'll talk a little bit more? Okay, so I had recently listened to Breast Cancer Update, and I heard the discussion about pre-op hormones. And, you know, the take home from that was that it can take a year for these tumors to shrink away. And I was ready to just treat her for a long period of time. But she was not very patient about that. She also didn't feel that Famara was doing the trick for her and it wasn't shrinking as fast as she anticipated. So I got her platelets under control very easily put her on aromacin, and she was convinced that this was a better option for her. After three months, she did have improvement on physical exam, and it had shrunk to a size of approximately three centimeters by palpation. The surgeon and I both agreed that we would continue to see if we could get more shrinkage from the tumor. So in April of 07, she stated that her breast felt normal to her. An ultrasound showed no abnormality. Mammogram showed a radial scar. MRI showed no evidence of malignancy. She had a negative physical exam, so we proceeded with the lumpectomy with trepidation from a surgical standpoint, but she flew through it and had no problems. At the time of pathology review after the lumpectomy, I was at breast conference, and everyone was so impressed with my work since she now had a 10-centimeter infiltrating lobular carcinoma that was left after all of the treatment. Margins were all positive. Lymphovascular invasion was negative, and now we were saying, well, what are we going to do with this lady now? We got her through one surgery, and, I mean, the option was to take her back for a mastectomy, put her on more treatment. She wanted to get it done, and so she went back for another surgery. She had a mastectomy. She had residual 0.9-centimeter tumor. She had two positive nodes. The surgeon was very much reluctant to go in and do an axillary dissection. He really just kind of nipped what he could. 
She did fine through the surgery, but she went to rehab to get over the surgery. She fell. She fractured her arm. She stayed in rehab longer. Her DEXA scan showed that her T-score was minus 4.8. She got out of rehab, came and saw me, and was still very anxious to continue with treatment and thought that everything had gone just fine. And so I talked to her about taking tamoxifen. I thought that was a reasonable alternative with the osteoporosis that we were dealing with and the fracture, but she had looked into that, had absolutely no interest in taking tamoxifen, was very pleased that the aromacin had done such a good job. She went on to radiation therapy, tolerated that, even though she rode the bus every day, which in Las Vegas is not the same as buses in some places. It was a major undertaking for her, but she did it. Her daughter who lives with her does not drive, so we have her coming back and forth on the bus. She continues on aromacin now, and she's on a bisphosphonate. She's doing well, and her platelets are under 400,000. So, you know, it's funny. When you go to these conferences, they put a little slide up, you know, X-year-old, a tumor, whatever. But this is more like the reality, John, of taking care of patients with cancer. Well, I think this is a success story, all of a difficult success. Hats off to you. But, you know, it sounds to me, if I were in your shoes now, I'd just continue the aromasin at least for five years, and then hopefully at that point we'll have some more data as to what the optimal duration of AI might be. I would just make sure she's on calcium and vitamin D. I I assume she is, Mm -hmm. but, you know, there's reasons to suspect that when a woman's on a bisphosphonate, some of the symptoms that they have and the efficacy of the bisphosphonate would be improved if they have adequate vitamin D levels. And she's tolerating the AI well without a lot of musculoskeletal problems. John, you're an investigator with the ATT&CK trial, and there was a 100-month update presented at the San Antonio meeting, and also essentially simultaneously the paper was published. Can you talk about the findings there? Well, certainly. Well, we have a 100 months follow-up of the ATAC data, which, as you know, is the randomized trial of anastrozole versus tamoxifen. There was a third arm of combination therapy which got dropped. It was the first trial to start, so it's the one with the longest follow-up. We also knew less about the potential problems, and so you know, bone issues may not have been handled as well as they might have been in later trials. But the data is basically showing that we have a persistent and prolonged improvement in disease-free survival. But the median age when these women started was 64, and so by definition these women are now in their early 70s on average. There's no evidence of a survival advantage. So there's no survival advantage to upfront anastrozole versus upfront temoxifen, which is in my mind a disappointment because you know, I like to think we're all here to save lives as well as prevent relapses. And the explanation that many people on the committee favor is that any survival effect that might have existed in a younger population just gets wiped out by these women being killed by cardiovascular disease, not specifically on one arm or the other, or the other causes of morbidity and mortality in that age population. So given the fact that there's no real quality of life advantage to either regimen, although the side effects are different, I think the choice now when you see a woman, if you're looking at a five-year therapy, now becomes complex because we've got tamoxifen for five years, you've got an AI for five years without proven survival advantage, you've got the switch option from other trials, either early switch or extended adjuvant after five years. And it's a long discussion if you're actually going to take the time and try to explain it to a woman. So, you know, I would like to see some data from the big 198 trial to at least give us some heads up as to whether the switch or the upfront strategy, at least within that five-year window, is going to be a superior strategy. So can you talk about what your thoughts were? And one of the things that was presented there was the data on years five through nine, you know, the longer follow-up and the question of whether or not there was going to be a carryover effect to these AIs. And also, 
the comment that came out about the fact that in other studies like the NSABP B14 trial took 10 years before you could see a mortality advantage. Well, I mean, in speaking to the carryover effect, I mean, you know, with the hormonal therapies, the concern was always, what are we doing with the therapies? Are we getting a cytal effect, a static effect? Are we going to see curves quickly move together when we stop the intervention? And they didn't. They continued to actually move apart with tamoxifen. That was called a carryover effect. And the same thing was seen with the aromatase inhibitors. So there appears to be continuing benefits after stopping, but we have the data that shows, but by continuing, there's even greater benefit. So that's an area that, again, just from a practical sense, I've never quite understood the implication of it because we do show that switching from tamoxifen over to an aromatase inhibitor patients did even better still than the carryover effects. So really in a practical sense, it gets to the duration question. You know, we know there is a lot of data that's been shown, and I think the MA17 data really made it popular for people to talk about it and really look at those late events. And there does seem to be clearly a different pattern that ER-positive breast cancers in the first few years don't seem to have the event rates to match the ER-negatives, but over time, they're certainly as great as ER negative and probably greater. And the bulk of recurrences do happen in years 5 to 15. The difficulty we have in tracking that with clinical trial databases is that people move around so much. And again, you know, something that I have a concern about is a clinical trialist is that you hear these calls for long-term follow-up on trials and studies so we can learn these late effects. Yet, as I see the data come into the NSABP, I see that the realities are that the treating doctors often lose contact with the patient at that point, and your follow-up starts to be death reports in a social security log. So the kind of information everybody says we want and need is going to be very hard to come by. And I think this is why population-based data sets like we get in countries where there is more of a structure and a socialized, as it were, will really actually be probably more important for really learning what's going on than the clinical trials, just because there's a finite amount of time that doctors can really keep up with their patients beyond a decade, frankly. Could you comment, Chuck, on the NSABP B42 study looking at this issue of duration of AIs? Sure. B42 is a straightforward design, a placebo-controlled trial, randomizing patients who complete five years of an AI or five years of a switching therapy. They can have had up to three years of tamoxifen and then switch and be eligible. It makes the assumption that the available data in those trials took therapy to five years and stopped, so this is continuing efforts beyond and randomizing patients, as I say, to an additional five years of letrozole or placebo to see what the effect of continuation is on that template, as it were, of an initial AI, largely dominated first five years. I think there's always that moment of the separation anxiety for a patient when she's been on a agent for a long time and is adjusted to it, is tolerating it, and now it's time to stop, you know, and so clearly that's an issue. And so the B40 trial is designed for doctors and patients who would say, yeah, I'd stop. You have to be comfortable with the stopping. 
are there patients where their residual risk is so high or who are doing so well that one might decide to continue? Yeah, clearly there are. I think, you know, this gets into the individualization, but I think that clearly needs to be, to me, recognized as an exception, and there's very specific reasons that one's doing that, and that it isn't really a recommended or a standard or those sorts of things. Yeah, all these things are, as you know, being in practice, you know, you have to make your best decision for the patient, usually without perfect clinical research information. Alan? John, I'm wondering... I get you to say a little bit more about the infiltrating lobular carcinomas. I've seen some data that says that their prognosis is better. Then I've seen data, I think I saw a poster at St. Antonio, that their prognosis was worse. And then I'm wondering, are you saying that the lobulars, if you do a recurrence score on those patients, they always have a low recurrence score? Is there even a need to send an oncotype recurrence score on someone with a lobular? You're saying they're chemotherapy insensitive. Can you say a little bit more about that? What I'm saying is that my take of the literature on the prognosis with infiltrating lobular carcinoma when compared to infiltrating ductal carcinoma is that if you match for all the other factors, size, nodal positivity, it's a wash. The prognosis is identical. But if you happen to be faced with an infiltrating lobular carcinoma and you happen to be in a position where you're giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy, don't expect a path CR. It virtually never happens. And in part, that might simply be that infiltrating lobular carcinomas tend almost invariably to be strongly ER positive. So if you were to take a strongly ER positive infiltrating ductal carcinoma, I also wouldn't expect much necessarily from neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I'm just telling you, you don't necessarily have much of a chance of breast conservation or PATH-CR if you happen to be giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy for an infiltrating lobular carcinoma. And I don't mean anything that their necessarily micrometastatic burden is chemo-insensitive. I'm just saying that primary tumor itself is unlikely to shrink. Would you think with the lack of survival benefit that a woman who has frank osteoporosis at the beginning and no other reasons not to use tamoxifen should be placed on tamoxifen? Well, if this woman with advanced osteoporosis was getting you know, vitamin D, calcium, and a bisphosphonate and still had profound osteoporosis, I wouldn't be so worried about the introduction of an AI. It looks like the effect of even in an osteopenic or an osteoporotic population on an AI that there isn't ongoing bone loss, at least not bone density loss. So I'm not so concerned about that as I used to be because we now know with the supportive measures you can introduce for bone, you probably won't make the same mistakes we made on the ATAC trial where we were venturing into new territory and these women were not you know, routinely recommended to have calcium, vitamin D, and you know, we didn't do routine DEXA scans at the time we did it just on a subset. And we didn't know at the time that bisphosphonates, basically every trial that's looked at bisphosphonate therapy halts any bone density loss with whatever bisphosphonate is used in whatever AI set. So the bone issues, I think, are manageable now in a way that they weren't a few years ago. But I think your expectations just have to be a little bit lower. It may take a meta-analysis to tease out a subtle and small survival advantage. But at the end of the day, you didn't get it on the ATAC trial. Bob? If I recall, when tamoxifen was compared to placebo, it took a meta-analysis to actually show a survival difference. I'm not sure how many patients were on that, but I think it was PEDO's meta-analysis that first showed a survival advantage. And I wonder if, well, first of all, the difference between tamoxifen and arimidex is going to be even smaller than tamoxifen versus placebo. It is smaller. And I wonder if you have enough patients on the trial to actually show it at this point in time to even expect a survival advantage. 
It kind of reminds me a little bit in colon cancer and how much additional benefit do you get from oxaliplatin? You're getting this big bump with the 5-FU, so, you know, differentially. But, I mean, suppose the AIs have been developed before tamoxifen. You saw what happens. They get the arthralgias and bone story, all that stuff, the recurrences. And then tamoxifen came along and had 20% more recurrences and endometrial cancer and thrombosis. And if it happened that way, would we be using tamoxifen? Probably not. Yes. Probably wouldn't have got FDA approval. Just a thought. Chuck? To me, seeing this lady, the goal of therapy in her was primarily local regional control. You did not want that disease to get away from you and cause this active lady this miserable problem. So, you know, I think when she came in, to me, the optimal therapy would have been a mastectomy, radiation, and hormone therapy. Now, she wouldn't let you do that, so you basically ultimately got to what I would have thought she really needed in the first place, so it worked great. I think the aromasin worked fabulously well. It doesn't bother me in the least that you found residual microscopic lobular breast cancer over that original zone of tumor. I mean, Dr. Fisher, I still remember his cartoons about the neoadjuvant therapy. You know, was it the shrinking snowball, or was it sort of the disappearance of the ghost? And you don't know which way it's going to go till you do it. And, you know, I think the lady wanted breast cancer. Everything was appropriate, but that's why I would not have felt any angst about, oh, God, look at the residual disease. Should we rethink it? You know, you had thought it before, and she did everything you wanted. So I would add, since my local control, and she had such a big tumor, and she was willing to go through it, I certainly would do the radiation therapy, but I wouldn't feel angst at all about sticking with the aromasin.